Great. Well, it's uh, wonderful to be able to welcome you again uh, this evening. My name is Pete Greenwood. Um, uh, I'm part of uh, the Sermon Australia in, um, network um, and also an Anglican minister, pastor of Inner West Church uh, in the Inner West of Melbourne, doing running uh, with a um, doing missional communities uh, for a couple of years now, and so it's wonderful to, to be able to you know, share, share this great uh, stuff with you, this great material. Uh, again, uh, great to be able to uh, thank um, Soma Australia for putting this on, also the Churches of Christ who have sponsored this event. Uh, it was really generous and wonderful. Uh, and also, um, this, this amazing space is our North Fitzroy Community Church, and they're giving it to us uh, free of charge over these two nights, which is just super wonderful um, and very generous. Uh, there'll be more people coming in as we go. Um, we, uh, for those of you who were here last night, you know the deal. Uh, for those of you who weren't, uh, we've got Duke Rivard with us. Uh, Duke is from the United States. Uh, he is part of the Soma family of churches and he's been doing missional communities for a long time. He's going to be sharing with us, I guess, uh, following on from last night, which is what are missional communities, how do they work, how do they function, to, well, what the heck do I do then if I've got an existing church of, of maybe small groups or Bible studies or maybe nothing, um, nothing at all? How do I transition my church or as a, as a clergy person, as an ordained person or as a lay person uh, to be more missional, to, to do life on mission in the way we're kind of talking about? That's the topic for tonight. This is where the rubber hits the road, so I'm really excited to hear uh, what Duke has to say. Um, there will be about a uh, talk for about an hour. We'll have a little break, and then there'll be Q and A. So it'd be really helpful if during the talk you jot down your questions, so that when you when we get there, uh, you can put your hand up. We'll have plenty of time for questions, um, so don't you worry. Uh, toilets are out the back. Uh, please don't close that first door behind you, otherwise you'll be locked in for the night, um, which would be a pity for everyone. Uh, there's water over there as well if you get thirsty. Um, but why don't I pray before uh, we invite Duke up? Oh, gracious God, uh, we thank you so much that you have uh, called your church uh, to be the people of God, your witnesses, your ambassadors in the world. Uh, Lord, we hear this calling and we want to be faithful to it. Uh, we're here tonight, Lord, uh, not because we're interested in some newfangled thing, but because we have a passion for mission, a passion to be faithful to the calling, the commission uh, that you have given us uh, through Jesus. Uh, Lord, we want to see our city, uh, our state, our country changed uh, by the gospel. And so we pray that, Lord, you would work powerfully uh, through us uh, and through Duke as he speaks uh, tonight as well. Help us to be attentive. Uh, help us to listen really well and uh, help us to ask great questions. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you give Duke a hand? Welcome him up as he comes. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, as we get started, and this is for someone who was here last night, maybe for the rest of the group, in, in the event that there's somebody here who is new and wasn't able to be with us last night, uh, give me in your own words what a missional community is. And there's not a wrong answer necessarily. We'll, we'll work it out together. What's, what's a missional community? Okay. <laughs> there we go. Can't be wrong there. Yeah, so a community on mission. Yeah. Anything else you guys might add? Okay. So a gospel community on mission. Christ crucified and resurrected for us, for our new life, eternal. So yeah. So that's, that's a really basic uh, definition of a missional community. It's a community that's formed by the gospel, which is the church, uh, on the mission of God in the world, but together, in the everyday. That's, those are some of the, the really key components that I think 
are there. We tried to make the case last night that it's really a New Testament church, so it's not a particular um, pragmatic strategy per se as much as it is an attempt to reconcile all of the fidelities the scriptures call the church to be and do in the world. Okay, so that's, that's our, our belief. Tonight, we're going to talk about what do you do if you have a church that's built on another model? Maybe you're coming out of a celebration cell model. Maybe you're coming out of a programmatic model. Uh, maybe you're coming out of uh, any other uh, manner of, of church structure, and you're perhaps convinced that this is biblical and maybe even where the Spirit's leading you. What are some of the ways that you then think about transitioning. And so um, we, you know, as we began to train like this, uh, the Soma family and particularly Soma Tacoma, upwards of, gosh, probably eight years ago, eight, nine years ago, uh, there were some churches that had already planted that, you know, began to transition. And so we, there has been a bit of a observable history of how it's gone with churches that have done that, and so we'll be able to speak to that as well and give some concrete examples of both pitfalls and some that, you know, have really done a great job of, of transitioning their churches. So uh, that's really our, our agenda today. Uh, I have a grid that I use uh, often when I think about tackling a problem. I learned it from a mentor. I'll use it tonight. I think it'll help us to frame up the entire uh, time, and it's, it's really built on a triangle. You guys know this is Soma, so we like whiteboards, we like triangles. Um, so we're going to do some more of that tonight, but a totally different triangle. Um, and really the first step, I believe, in transition, and for many of you this step is already well underway, really the first step is awareness. So God calls us out of our awareness, right? So Nehemiah is, you know, captive, right, in the, in the exile, but he becomes aware that the, the wall is, is down in, in Jerusalem. He he's first has an awareness, and out of that awareness, he has a burden, right? And he has a burden to do something about it. And in the same way, each one of us, when we think about a transition, we think about doing something new, or we think about a problem that needs to be addressed, it, it starts with awareness. We, just, we, have, we have to know that there's a problem, or something's not biblical, or something's not working. Uh, but that's really where uh, many of you may be tonight or already past this step. But um, there's a couple different ways that we become aware. Um, the first, I believe, is just biblical, right? So we've read the Bible for years. We've looked at the forms of our church and we've gone, is this what the church is supposed to be and do? Okay, we've inherited systems, we've inherited structures of the church. They're familiar, maybe they're what we've grown up with. And some of us maybe all of us at different points, have had unexamined ecclesiologies where we're just kind of doing what we know and doing what we've seen done, um, but at times maybe seeing gaps where we realize this doesn't quite seem to measure up with some of the, some of the things that are happening in the New Testament church. Where is that going to show ex and be expressed? Where, where does that happen? We don't have a good answer. Um, the other one is related perhaps to fruitfulness. Uh, we defined last night that, you know, if you look out, and you realize that the church systems and structures are not actually creating mature disciples that can make disciples, there's a, there's a certain limit to the kind of fruit that the system or structure can bear, You're, you also come back to this awareness of, wait a minute, we have to go back to the drawing board because we're not actually making disciples that can make disciples. Um, for some of you, 
You, you may have read the Willow Creek Reveal study in 2007, but in, in, at least in North America, Willow Creek had an entire association and had thousands of churches following them. Okay? And they had built the Celebration Cell model, and they're doing you know, evangelistic seeker services and programs, and, um, and everybody's following them. But eventually, 2007, they do a self-study, very, very scientific, thousands of man-hours, you know, PhD-level internal study, and they discover that um, they're a nursery, essentially, that they can make babies through evangelism, but they're not able to make disciples, uh, that they're not able to actually develop people all the way up to maturity to the place that they can then make disciples themselves. And so this is them talking about themselves. You can read, again, the Reveal study in 2007. So this is a church coming into awareness that, hey, our systems and structures are not actually making disciples mature enough to go and make disciples. Okay? That's, that's one of the other pieces of awareness. Another piece that I think is, is spiritually discerned is really the leading of the Spirit. Okay? And this is, I, I may just call prayer. And, and really you become aware in prayer, and I think you're even asking the question, God, is this something you're calling us to do? Because there are, and I think before God and, and being faithful, there are other ways of organizing the church that aren't missional communities. And the Soma family and all of us here, we don't want to say that if you're not a church of missional communities, somehow you're wrong. Um, in fact, I, I mentioned four fidelities last night of gospel, community, mission, and accountability, and said if a church has those components really working well, they're probably making disciples that can make disciples. Okay, and it may not be organized exactly like a missional community. It may look a little bit different, but those core functions will be happening, and, and you can be seeing disciples made. And so, but we talk about transition. God, are you leading us, our church in this city at this time, to, to move towards missional communities. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a prayerfully uh, spirit-led decision that you're gaining awareness around, okay? Because not everybody maybe will transition. And, and what is um, our responsibility? What, what are we to do with that? Okay, so base level awareness. This is this kind of first step we think about transitioning. Uh, second step is really, I think, theological vision, okay? And so... This is coming out of kind of this biblical idea. This, when I think about this stage, I think a bit more about exploration. We're just trying to get our head around, should we even consider this? Is it biblical? We haven't concluded maybe that it is. At this stage, we're really in the place where we believe it is. And we're trying to craft theological vision. We're trying to understand um, what it really means to be a missional church. And I, I think within this, this phase, we might have something called uh, clarity and conviction. Okay, if you don't have clarity and conviction at the theological level as to what you're doing, I wouldn't advise you to transition. Right? If it's something that's still murky, or you have, um, you know, some some things to work out, or it's it's somewhat clear but it's not yet in your gut, like a fire in your belly that you just feel you have to do um, to be faithful. If that's not where you're at, I think there's probably work to do. Uh, as you're considering something like a transition, okay? Um, the other thing is, is new metrics. I think within a, a theological vision, once you actually map out something maybe like we looked at last night, uh, some of the, the core theological pieces, and we, we, I apologize we didn't probably go into it near as much as we typically do. Uh, typically what we did last night we'll do over the course of six or seven hours. Spend a lot more time uh, unpacking. Uh, uh, that stuff's all available. You guys can always 
uh, look into that if you want to go to um, saturatetheworld.com or wearesoma.com. Uh, all of those trainings are there and they're in much more detail. But at any rate, um, with theological clarity and conviction, uh, I think we also start to think through uh, new metrics. Okay, We start to think through um, really what are the metrics that are going to define a new model. Because uh, inherent within systems are what you measure. How, how, do you, how do you know if you're doing it well? Uh, in, in some uh, uh, business books and otherwise, they talk about defining the win. Uh, if, you, if you change your system wholesale, often you're going to have to redefine what the target is. You're going to have to redefine what the metrics are. And uh, lots of Soma churches have, have done that. I think um, whereas maybe in a church growth uh, model or a megachurch model, uh, maybe even a programmatic model, uh, you know, people are measuring uh, growth, just the sheer number of people. Do we just have more people in the building and in the programs than we did last year, right? That can be a really key metric. Sometimes it's budgets. Do we have more, more budget uh, to sustain more staff to keep more programs running for more people, right? Sometimes it's buildings. It's the ability to really house those people and to, to facilitate the programs, to facilitate those ministries, particularly if it's centralized attractional and you want more and more people to come to the hub. Do we have sort of the facilities we need to facilitate the ministry that we're doing? Those would be an example of metrics. But if you shift to missional communities, those metrics no longer really make a lot of sense. Um, there, there's some new metrics altogether that become important. Uh, and so part of theological vision is getting your mind around the win. Um, some have, have defined it this way uh, within SOMA in terms of metrics. Uh, we start to measure or think about gospel conversations, right? How many gospel conversations are just happening in the flow of our community? Uh, Romans says that faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of truth. And we, and we know uh, people have a way of not coming to Christ when the church has a way of not proclaiming the gospel, right? Um, it, it takes the word going out. And so we, we, we might think through missional metrics like, Bapt or like uh, gospel conversations. And then, like most churches, we're probably looking at, as well, baptisms or regeneration. Are we seeing people place their faith in Christ after hearing the gospel? And then Christian growth and maturity, right? Are we seeing Christians being conformed to the image of Christ? Okay? They're more like Jesus this year than they were last year. And, and, and there are some ways that I think the New Testament gets after that, some of which are very simple, I believe Paul, multiple times in his letters, references faith, hope, and love. This idea of, are our people walking more in faith and less in fear and anxiety than they were last year? Okay? Are people living in hope right now? Are they, are they more mature in love than they were this time last year? Okay? So these are subjective and nuanced, but something around the spiritual growth of Christians. Is that really happening? Are they, are they moving into maturity, looking more like Jesus? And then I think within a missional community model, you also have metrics around leadership development. Do we have more leaders? Have we developed the leaders to disciple the people, to go into the mission uh, in the world? And so leadership development becomes a really key metric that you look at. And then most are also thinking even more apostolically about church planning. Are we raising up church planners to be sent to start new works and new places as this thing expands and grows, uh, whether new missional communities or new churches altogether as we expand in uh, the mission. So uh, with new theological vision comes, comes new, new metrics. Um, really the, the next one and, and really where we want to spend most of our time tonight is on strategy, okay? Because we're talking about the how-to and we're talking about what do, you, what do you do to move a group of people 
from one model to the next, and that's really in the realm of, of strategy. Um, can you guys hear me all right with the rain? I need to speak louder into the mic, or is it okay? Yeah? Okay, good. Yeah, so in, in, in strategy, um, you're really talking about, I think, firstly, something like change management. And there is uh, there's quite a lot written, and I, you know, in, in academia, in secular academia, around change management. And, and I think there's some common grace that's available to Christians to understand just how, how humans operate, how humans change, particularly groups of people. Because, um, you know, when you, the, the, really the larger the, the group, the larger the crowd and the bigger the change, the more you have to account for all the complexity of what that will mean and even the time and the, and the, and the pace of that. And so um, one thing that, you know, that I've, I've noticed as we've been sort of on this journey and as even I planted a church in, in Portland was that, uh, you know, really when you plan a, whether you plant a church of missional communities or you transition a church to missional communities, you're really doing some level of change management. So what I was doing in church planting was I was doing change management with individual Christians who were, in, who were joining my core team because none of them had ever grown up with an understanding of missional community. They had their own ecclesiology, their own personal church history, and it wasn't missional communities. So individually, I was reshaping ecclesiology, reshaping their understanding, gospel community mission, what it meant to make disciples in the everyday. Um, what's tricky about tonight, and what's tricky about the, the transition is now you're trying to do that in mass with lots of people and you have the self-reinforcing DNA of, of, of a group identity and the way that the church has always operated. And so you're really doing um, a more complex thing uh, because you're having to do it uh, with, with multiple people. Okay? And so that's, that's really change management. There, there are books on change management. If I were in one of your shoes, if I was leading a church and I was going to uh, really think about how people change, how they get their eyes, their, their head around new ideas, uh, how long that takes, some of those principles. I would, I would be reading some books. Um, you know, there's um, Everett Rogers has a book, uh, Diffusion of Innovation. Um, and you've got books like Cotter from, from Harvard. He's got a book called Leading Change, which is all about change management. Uh, Patrick Lencioni has written a book called The Advantage, which talks about creating organizational health. And, and so much of his work is about creating organizational clarity, where people really understand what we're doing at every stage, uh, that you're removing ambiguity, you're bringing continuity at every single stage of the process so that, so that people aren't hearing one thing and you're saying another and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's a lot, of, a lot of communication and consistency um, as you work through. And so, uh, you know, change management is, is just a huge component of, of the strategy. Um, yeah, that's, that's there. The other piece of, of strategy, and I think it's a subset of, of change management, is really pace. Okay, and so some of the biggest pitfalls that we have seen have really been along the lines of, of people who thought this could be done much more quickly than it can actually be done. Okay, an example of, you know, a really poor way to do this is to um, spend six months planning a really big splash uh, putting together a two, three-week sermon series, uh, one on gospel, one on community, one on mission, and just roll it out, preach it to, to begin the fall, get everybody all excited, 
and then you just like assume that all the Bible studies are going to kind of fall into missional community life and it's all just going to go well. And, and then six months later, nine months later, 12 months later, the church looks relatively the same. There was just a sermon series <laughs> that happened uh, a few months back that we've kind of forgotten a little bit about. Okay, um, and, and that's just the, uh, the inability or the, um, the failure to really fully anticipate how much time and, and really communication would have to go into a group of people getting their heads around something as different as missional communities from what most of our, our cultural forms have been uh, to date. Um, one, one statement that you know, is often used in, in, I think, in missional community life in general at the missional community level, but also even at the macro level, uh, comes from markmanship. I know uh, Australians don't walk around with guns near as much as, as Americans, and so markmanship isn't necessarily something you guys uh, do, but, but the phrase is uh, slow is fast, and fast is slow. And so if you're actually going to aim a weapon uh, and you're in a real hurry, um, your breathing's off, you're, you're going you're gonna to miss the target. Okay, but if you're you're very very slow in marksmanship, that's actually the fastest way to hit the bullseye. Okay, and so this is a term that you use uh, in in marksmanship. Well, the same is true with with missional community transitions. The communities that really understand the deliberate slowness that's going to have to be in place and the patience and the long view that's going to be necessary have been those who've who've been successful at actually going in. Um, it's, it's just, it, it takes that uh, to, to turn a group of people over time. Um, yep, other things that, are, that I think are really important at the strategic level, and this probably gets into some of Lencioni's work on communicating clarity throughout the entire organization and bringing about uh, cohesion, are, are really um, what I, I like to call, I don't know if this is helpful, it's, it's more of a, a metaphor than anything else, um, mosaic, vision, Vignettes. I know that's, is that familiar to anybody? Does that, those words mean anything to anyone? Uh, a vignette is, you know, a short little uh, snapshot to help somebody get an idea. Um, the, the, the churches that do a great job at helping people get their mind around something like missional community do a, do a great job of thinking of individual instances that embody the behaviors and the fruit of, of missional community life and making sure they highlight those or they celebrate those, okay? And so it could be something very, very small, right? It could be an example of somebody who's saying, you know what, we were, we were about to re- uh, renew our lease, and because our missional community is on mission to this neighborhood, we just we looked for an apartment that was, more, you know, that was closer to that neighborhood because we just felt like that's where we're on mission, so why wouldn't we just get an apartment a little bit closer to our mission? Well, if that happens in your community, uh, first of all, it's a really good sign that people are orienting their life around mission. It's a huge win. Well, that's something that you grab and you, you celebrate in a worship gathering or you celebrate at a training or you highlight as the kinds of uh, thinking that are, are evidence that people are actually walking out faithfulness unto, to a particular vision, that, that they do think the Great Commission is a central uh, priority in their life and they're even choosing where they live based on mission. Um, not unlike an overseas missionary who moves across their whole life to a place on mission, and they, they absolutely pick their housing based on their mission, their people group, and, and who they're called to. And so when everyday disciples start thinking that way, you're like, that's vision realized. Okay? And so vision vignettes, mosaics on the floor, okay, you're finding all those little examples, and you're starting to put them on the wall. 
of your church. And in doing so, you're forming an ethos. You're forming a, a theological vision that's now more concrete because people are starting to say, okay, I think I know what you mean. Okay, there can be so many of these, and they can be very, very small things, but if you have a community and a leadership team that's able to observe all those things and to narrate for the whole how all those things measure up to become a church that's now organized and pursuing a life of gospel community on mission together in the everyday, there, people are starting to get more and more of an understanding of what that really means. Okay. We even saw that last night. So you guys are hearing theory, you're hearing theology, but when we actually start to talk about a couple of real-time missional communities in the real terms, all of a sudden people go, oh, okay, I, I think I understand what you're talking about. Now, this is it's not as um, it's demystifying. It's not as complex or inaccessible as it was before. And so um, doing that as a, as a leadership team is, is absolutely essential. Um, you can give a few more. Um, you've got people living as good family. So let's say before they were in a programmatic church and they really didn't see themselves as family. They just said, hey, we both go to the same church. We hear the same sermons. And, you know, we like each other. We're, we're friendly enough, but we don't, you know, live sacrificially for each other. You, you just see Christians starting to be good family, right? They're babysitting each other's kids or they're giving rides to the airport or they're helping each other with home improvement. That's something to celebrate. That's, that's the family identity being lived out in real time in a missional community. You see service, you see mission, people starting to step into a proactive mission. Uh, we, we do this in our worship gatherings where we will highlight a missional community and we'll just have them share an update of some of what they're doing and what it's looking like. And, and we share the, the good stuff and the hard stuff. So it's not only the successes, it's also the struggles. And that helps other MCs and even others that aren't in a, a missional community yet to sort of start to understand with flesh on some of what it means to be a church on mission together. So vision vignettes are, are an important part of that. Another aspect of strategy is thinking through uh, staff allocation and where you actually spend your time. Okay, and that, have to, that usually shifts massively, and, and some don't account for that. And some of the worst mistakes I've seen in transitioning a church, a church will just hire the MC guy, right? There's just this one new staff person or this one person who's going to focus on MCs and the rest of the church is going to continue on as if nothing else has changed. Uh, that's, a, that's actually a, a horrible mistake uh, because it says that we view missional communities just as another program to run alongside all the other things that the church has always been doing. And every time we've seen that attempted, it's, it's been like what I said last night, trying to run Windows and PC at the same time. Eventually it slows everything down. It it. it it just crashes uh, in, in functional ways. Uh, uh, people start to uh, cannibalize each other. They need volunteers for this. They're taking them from that. They're pulling people out of mission to get volunteers for the programs, or they're frustrated they don't have enough volunteers for the programs, and it just starts to not, not work together. Um, but if, if you're going wholesale with, with the transition to missional communities, you're going to think about your staff allocation of time much differently. Um, you're probably not going to spend quite as much time on production value as, as you would in, in a more attractional church. Okay? You might not, your, your gatherings, while done with excellence, might not be done with quite the same theatrical pop uh, that you were doing before because you just don't have quite the same amount of time. And you're not putting all your hopes and dreams on the strategy of not yet believers coming to gatherings as, the, as, your, as your lone uh, evangelistic strategy. Um, and so staff allocation, that could be, Certainly equipping missional community leaders, coaching missional community leaders, uh, thinking through equipping uh, other things that will have to go into it, um, curriculum, things like that. Um, even staff meeting discussions change, um, and the kinds of things that come up change because 
again, you're going for a totally different model, and you've got different metrics, and now you're having different conversations at the staff level. Okay, I've been on uh, staffs with, with mega churches, and I've been on staffs in missional community churches. And I can just tell you, the staff meetings are very, very different. In fact, I've actually sat in elder meetings of, of mega churches, uh, and then I've sat in elder meetings of, of missional community churches, and the conversations are very different. Okay, and so part of understanding what it's going to take is to say it's a wholesale shift. Um, it's, it's a different vision. It's a different way of being the church with different metrics. You're going to have different conversations um, in all that you do. Okay, so that's, that's part of, of what it takes. Along the way, I mentioned vision vignettes. Uh, stories become really, really important. Uh, they become proof of concept for, for people who are skeptical, for people who are trying to get their head around uh, what's going on and is this real and does this happen and we sing fruit. Um, and so you're celebrating those um, as, as often as possible. Um, with all of those things, uh, the final step, I think, might be <laughs> as crucial or, or more so than all the rest. The final step is courage. Okay? There's a, there's a movie in America about a sport that you guys don't play, baseball. Uh, does anybody understand baseball, kind of, a little bit? Okay. Just imagine cricket, and all the, maybe all the principles would apply. So there's a book by Michael Lewis called Moneyball, okay? And it's all about this guy, who, he's a quant, or, you know, using big data. You guys know big data and all that's going on with that, where people are starting to crunch massive amounts of data to come to uh, new conclusions about uh, what's proven. Like, it's not even uh, conjecture. It's actually mathematically proven to be superior for that or this. I used to work in marketing consulting, and you're all being targeted with ads all the time, and there's tremendous amounts of big data being crunched about all of you all the time, and you're being retargeted with ads all the time. Uh, but people are, are doing that with, with big data. Well, Michael Lewis was doing that uh, for baseball. Well, actually, he wrote a book about a guy, Billy Bean, who was doing that about baseball. And what he found was there were certain baseball players who they're not really the most athletic, they're not the most glitzy, uh, but somehow they just tend to get on base, whether they get hit by pitches, which isn't really glamorous, uh, or somehow maybe their strike zone is small, which means they, they get walked, which they get on base kind of for free without having to earn a hit, or they just find a way to get sloppy hits. I mean, it's never, it wasn't the guys that sort of looked the coolest doing it, but somehow they just were guys that got on base at a higher percentage than anyone else. Well, he went and found, he really showed that on-base percentage is the highest predictor for, for runs scored. And so he went out and he found in the entire league, even some guys that have retired, and he brought them back in because they had just kind of anomalous uh, on-base percentages. I hope this isn't too technical of, of an illustration to make the point. Um, but at any rate, um, he discovered uh, this happened. And, and what's important about courage is that initially the math made complete sense. The math was concrete. It was airtight. They ran the numbers a thousand times. They knew that their math would win right? But the first third of the season, they were actually in an, like a totally fluke of, of a math scenario. They were in a trough mathematically where all of the math was actually not working in the short run. And so they're at this impasse where they're already doing something that is so weird, right? So different than what any other baseball team's doing, kind of like missional communities and church. <laughs> um, they're doing something that no one else is really doing, and it's not exactly going great. And so you're at this impasse of are you actually going to have courage to continue and to believe first principles, to believe the thing that you think you knew that was in your gut that you believed in, or are you going to bail in short order because we, we didn't think, we thought the math would work immediately, 
right? We thought missional communities would work immediately. Uh, this is actually really hard, but what happened was over the course of the season, the math started to, to basically equal out in all the ways that they predicted, and you know, they actually did a phenomenal job. They went to the playoffs for the first time in a really long time, and then the Boston Red Sox stole all of the thinking around this new philosophy and, and big data, and actually went on to win the World Series for the first time in like 100 years, which like never happened, and so it was, it was definitely proven, but there was a, there was a time when Billy Bean and these guys really had to stick with their awareness, their vision, their strategy, and, and have courage to say, hey, I don't know why this is as hard as it is, but we, we, we believe this at a gut level. We believe this is the right path. We're actually going to stay on this path and see it all the way through. Um, I believe the churches that are going to transition to missional community are going to have that kind of courage. Uh, they're going to have that kind of gut-level conviction that this is biblical, that this is what our city needs, that, uh, that non-believers aren't coming to our programs or our attractional things anymore, or at least a large percentage of our city's not, and, and we're going to have to go to them on their terms and their turf. We're going to have to raise up people. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's absolutely the work we have to do. And when it's not going super well, we're going to have to stay after it, and we're going to have to depend on the Spirit. We're going to see it through. Uh, it's going to take a tremendous amount of courage. Um, there are some who I believe have um, be what I'll, I'll call impatient pragmatists. Okay, these are those who've just who've bailed on it very very quick into it, and I would consider six months extremely quick into a transition. But they've just not seen the fruit they thought they would see in six months, and they said, "Hey, I don't know what what's the deal with missional communities. We tried them; they don't work." Okay, I can tell you there there are people of that mind. But those that'll be successful in this, they'll be principled perseverers. There'll be those who really believe their first principles and they'll continue to see through all those things. They'll continue to change management. They'll continue to develop people. They'll continue over time to help people transition to a totally new way of thinking, uh, to equip people who have not been equipped in the past to live at this level of discipleship. Um, and, and they'll see, I think, amazing fruit as so many, so many have. And so um, that's really a strategy that I think we, um, we can think about we think about change management, um, that is not at all practical. So before we, we conclude, you know, go into break or anything else, I'll just share a few examples of, of some churches that have transitioned, and actually good and bad, right? Some that I've seen go well, I've already mentioned some, some mistakes, um, and then some that have gone really well. So the worst transitions that I've seen, forgive me if I've already said that, um, maybe they're all bad, um, are, are those that have been done without leadership unity, okay? So what, what will happen is you'll have a staff-level leader who goes to a training like this and gets really excited, okay? They, they, they're totally bought in on what we talked about last night. The, who is God? What has he done? Who are we? Oh, yeah, we are the church. It's an identity, and we need to live it out in the everyday. We need to make disciples in the everyday. Um, they'll have some lay elders or some other leaders that are a, a part of them, and they'll attempt to download all that they're excited about. And, and those leaders might get... 40% of it, um, some, per, some percentage of it, and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that sounds cool. I think, yeah, the Great Commission, we're supposed to be doing stuff like that. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want our small groups to tweak here or there a little bit, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably fine. Um, well, what happens is a year in, um, things start to really change, and things are pretty different. Now you have a leader who's being asked to live and lead a missional community. Um, and maybe uh, his sp or the spouse is being asked to, to live in a missional community. And they're saying, I, I didn't sign up for that. I don't want to live this way. I don't, we don't have people 
in our home. You know, we don't, we don't live this. We don't invite this kind of thing. We, we really see uh, that as a separate thing. We, we like for church and ministry to happen at the building, and we don't, we don't do this. And so now you have a leadership team that's in, just inherently divided, right, with some who are really excited about it, uh, maybe even seeing fruit, and some who are very resistant to the idea at the very leadership level. Uh, it's kind of like mom and dad having an argument over what should happen with the kid, right? The kid's like looking to dad and then looking to mom and looking to dad, looking to mom, and is like, which one do I, I follow, right? What, do, we have, do we need to be in missional communities? Is that what God's calling us to? Is that what a leadership's calling us to? Because half the church is saying not so much. Half the church is saying yeah. And so the worst, some of the worst examples have been just that. And, and they've, uh, they've not gone well. Um, the, the leadership team didn't do the hard work to, to really arrive at unity together and to really define terms and to really define theological vision and to make sure that all parties were deeply uh, committed to the exact same thing and they meant the same thing. And so even now when, when churches ask us to transition, that's really where we spend most of the time. We spend time with their, their leadership core Okay, they're, they're key leaders, and we really define terms. We really define all the implications. We give them the, um, the really hard and sober realities of what it's going to mean, and we let them count the cost. Okay? This is like good premarital counseling, right? You're trying to scare the couple out of getting married just as a way to prevent a bad marriage or to prevent somebody going in with real romantic ideas about what it's going to be like and then being disappointed and thinking, oh, man, we made a mistake. It's like, no, it's just hard. Okay, you didn't make a mistake, it's just hard. And so we want to do that on the front end, and we want to get unity on the front end. Uh, it needs to be coming from a, a place of conviction. Um, another thing I've mentioned already, um, some of the worst examples have been people who've seen missional communities as just another program. Uh, there have been some churches that are mega churches built on uh, relevance, and they've just always wanted to be ahead of the curve or doing whatever's next, right? And so they hear about mission communities. Okay, this must be kind of the next cool thing. Let's hire a mission community guy. Let's just do that. Let's tack that on with all the rest. Um, and I, I think of one example in particular uh, where the guy was incredibly fruitful, actually. Um, multiplied multiple MCs within a megachurch. Um, but it started to rip at the seams of this church, okay? Um, for good... And, Unto good fruit, right? There was all this stuff happening, but these people were so on mission that they weren't serving the children's ministry. They weren't serving the programs, and the programs were under under volunteered. They didn't have enough help and support, and uh, and and the leadership really started to see what a missional community was. They had a superficial understanding before, and now they saw, oh wow, this is radically different than what we've been doing, and we're not sure we want you guys doing this anymore. Okay, uh, the problem was um, they had a whole group of people who had been pew warmers, people who'd never gotten in the game. They'd never gotten to do any heavy lifting of ministry, and now they'd gotten a taste of it. And they were absolutely on fire to be used of the Spirit to do meaningful work for God. And so they didn't want to flip back to the old way at all. And so they were kind of being asked to. And so then you have all these people that are like, you told us to go and do this. You blessed it. You, you put your seal on it. You endorsed it. We went and did it. We had a blast, and God did a lot of things, and now you're telling us to stop? And to, and to come and just volunteer once a month or volunteer over here, it's like, no. I mean, it's kind of like we can't. And, and then you guys told us to. And so there's just a lot that goes on uh, with that. Um, the other one I mentioned was sort of the superficial rollout. So treating it like a campaign, just building a lot of excitement, uh, just, you know, big, big splash. I'll, or maybe even I'll call it a flash fire, just like big flare up. And then like neglect it, don't staff it, don't coach it, don't equip it, don't, don't do vignettes, don't do anything to continue to clarify what it is over and over and over in a thousand ways. 
Um, and, and it just gets lost, and, and then leadership loses credibility. Because now they say, you know, somebody new comes and is like, what's this deal with missional community? It sounds kind of crazy. And it's like, oh, don't worry. It's just Bible studies. I just, they just changed the name nine months ago. It's not a big deal. Um, it's all the same. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. So it's like, okay, now we're just throwing jargon over the top of, of old forms and, and calling it new. Okay, that's happened uh, in some churches. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the core things. Um, but but leader, leadership unity um, has really been, you know, at, at the fore. Um, and as well, we just try to spend as much time as possible making sure they, there's, there's a biblical sort of uh, contextual uh, conviction about what it's going to be and then walking people through the long view. A um, couple of, uh, of examples real time. There's a church in Portland, Oregon called a Jesus Church, 7,000 people led by John Mark Comer. And uh, they became convinced at the convictional level uh, that disciples are made you know, in community while on mission. And that they, they had to do this. And very humble guys and, and, and very much sought out counsel. And um, asked Jeff Vanderstelt and some others to coach them through it. And they took more of the, the five-year view, five- to six-year view of what it would take to transition that many people into missional communities. Um, now, one of the advantages were they were already kind of a simple church. So they, had, they were really good at, at Sunday. They didn't really have a lot of programs. They, had, they did have already home groups. And that was really their only two forms. And so really what they were attempting to do is to take home groups and to transition those to missional communities. Um, did a tremendous amount of equipping at a high level, first with their leaders. Uh, well, first I should say they, they got their, their elder team completely on board, sought unity. Uh, then with their core of leaders, all those people that would be mis- likely missional community leaders, put them through a tremendous amount of training. Um, did a lot of assessment, did a lot of casting vision, clarifying. Then they did the same thing with the, the church at large started at each layer of the, of the organization and started to really communicate that out with everyone else and then began to transition uh, to missional communities. I think um, something about Everett uh, Rogers, his book, Diffusion of Innovation, uh, there is a sense of figuring out who early adopters are and then who some of the mid, mid, midstream people, late stream people, and so really starting to pilot groups, show proof of concept to the rest and gradually roll it all out. But we're committed to seeing the entire church transition and, and, and really stick with that. And so that was, that was an example of a church that, um, that it did it well. Um, we've seen um, some other churches I've mentioned. I won't mention names. Um, I talk about the guys that, that hired programs. Um, we've seen some with elders divided. Uh, but those are, yeah, those are some examples that hopefully help you guys get your minds around uh, some of what it, what it takes and it might take. Uh, to transition. Um, I want this to be as practical as possible, so we will. We'll take just a five-minute break, and you get water, stretch your legs, do whatever. Think of your questions. Think of the, the internal resistances or the curiosities or, or anything else related to, to what this might mean, and uh, we'll come back here in five minutes and, and start to, to entertain some of those, those questions. Thanks. All right, guys, we can go ahead. If, if you're over on the side, maybe come back to, to the chairs, and we'll get get rolling with uh, some of your questions. Okay. Before we get directly to the questions, though, I'd love to hear uh, highlights. What, what's a new thought or something that kind of clicked or, or piqued your interest there as we just talked through that first part? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any other highlights? Any things that kind of stuck out as you thought through 
Transition. Yeah. Vignette. Yeah, like vision vignettes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it moves it from the abstract to concrete, and people can say, okay, I think I know. And it demystifies. They say, okay, that's just normal stuff. Like, everybody can go over and help a neighbor with a little project. I can do that. Okay, that's what you mean by going over and being a servant uh, because we're missional? Okay, okay, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, stories are really, really important. Yeah, yeah, what else? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Communicating for clarity, make sure everybody's on the same page. Any other other highlights? Yeah. Okay, let's go to questions. Questions are great too. Yeah. Praxis, so walk me through that real quick. Like you're um, so Okay. So what is the what is the review process the, 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 the course of coming back and saying how's it going? Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that process is, is definitely happening within coaching relationships. So leaders are gonna be asked to reflect, you know, on how things are going. Um, and and often we talk about new metrics in your coaching relationships, having a grid for what, what's important and the kinds of questions you're going to be asked for the most critical aspects of what it means to, to lead um, are going to be there. And so leaders are going to have that opportunity to, to talk about how it's going. Um, I think, at in the, let's say, in a living room with the people in the missional community, there's also another level where a leader may stop and just check in with people and just say, hey, so we've been reaching out the past several months to this group, and we've been doing these things, and how do you feel like it's been going? And, and getting a temp on if people are excited about it or if they're feeling like, hey, we're kind of, kind of missing the mark or, or it's not clear or um, any other variable that might come up. And so, yeah, I think there's some real wisdom in a leader having a pulse at each level, uh, staff level leaders, equipping level leaders with leaders, and leaders with, with everyday disciples. Um, yeah, following up. Uh, we often do something close to like an annual review as well. So you really want to, at the beginning of the year or the end of the year with, with mission community leaders, really take an inventory, recap the whole year, recap some of the significant shifts that may have happened, some of the people movement that may have happened, uh, how that maybe reflects things, maybe give some clarity about where to go in the next year prayerfully. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, review is, is, a, is a key component of, of making sure um, you've got a pulse on how it's going, where people's understanding is, how that's developing, as well as how motivated they're remaining within the thing. Are they discouraged? Are they excited? Um, are they clear? Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's an important, important aspect for sure. Yeah, other questions in the back? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, most, most of those that are a bit older had some level of transition, 
Um, a lot of them were missional, so they were reading some of the missional books, and so they were already using some missional language, but they didn't have sort of refined, as, as much refined thought around how and some of the implications. And so even our church, I would say, went through a somewhat of a transition. Um, when we discovered Soma, there were, there were things we tweaked and we changed, things that uh, got more clear for us, and so it was, it was minor. Um, others have done wholesale, you know, and I, but I would say, you know, I, I don't have hard statistics on that, but I would guess um, upwards of probably 30% in our family currently did something like, a, you know, a, a transition. Um, many of them were our, our church plants and are fairly young, so they're, you know, five to six years old or younger, and they, they really were aware of Soma from the very beginning. Most of them attempted to plant pure, purely like a, a missional community uh, organized church. Um, so yeah, something like 30, 30%. Uh, we have other churches in what we call an adoption process who are wanting to join into the Selma family. And, and they're often larger churches that have transitioned to missional communities. And I, I would say that the statistics are much higher with the, those adoption churches in terms of those that have, that have transitioned. It's probably 70%. Um, and there's 15 churches right now in that adoption process uh, that are working that out. So yeah, on, on, our, on our whole scope of churches... That probably amounts to about uh, 20, 25 churches that have had some, some manner of, of transition, some more significant than others in terms of how they started and now that, where they're going. So, yeah. Sure, sure. So in, uh, in North America, several of our churches have a denominational affiliation as well, similar to some of the guys I know here with the Anglican or Church of Christ. Um, we do have many of our churches, probably 70% of them are also a part of a denomination. And so they do have to grapple with some of the denominational expectations. And so if you do have a presbytery or bishops or some other line of authority, I would think that that would be another variable that you'll have to, to think through. Uh, what level of clearance do you have at that, um, at that level to then pursue transition? Um, yeah, you're going to have to contend with the freedom or the lack of freedom that you have there. Um, yeah, in most cases, um, the big sticking point, at least in North America, is around the pace. And so uh, churches that are particularly church plants, well, you want to talk about transitions, though. Um, sometimes, you know, the metrics of the, the denomination can be superimposed upon the model. And if that church then has different metrics, there can be a little bit of rub, right? Because that church is no longer really attempting to, to hit the same target. And um, sometimes when that hits financial matters, uh, let's say the denomination has a tax, a denominational tax, and one model had more people, and those more people meant more dollars. Uh, they, they go to missional communities, maybe they lose 20% uh, of their people or something, uh, the cost of discipleship, whatever. Uh, that goes down a little bit. Maybe, maybe denominations see that and don't, don't really, you aren't super excited about that. And so, um, but I haven't really heard uh, too much denominational pressure from our guys. I think most of them have been given freedom for philosophy of, of ministry within their context. Um, yeah. Sure. Sure. 
Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's what I mean. If, if, if the key gatekeepers of the church, particularly those with authority, are not on board, I don't think a church should transition. So that's what I mean about uh, not having unity at the leadership level. Now, if they're not in a position of authority, if they're just kind of loud and angry, disgruntled uh, disciple, um, sometimes the show must go on. The leaders are convinced this is where they need to go, led of the Spirit. And they'll go and, and try to really deal with, with that person. Uh, or, or little cadre of people, if, if it's that, um, and that's a little bit different. But if, it, if, if gatekeepers, meaning authority, um, I really would encourage uh, working towards unity before some, some sort of shift were made. I think that's really important. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, so our, I talked about discipleship environments last night. And so if the basic organizing principle is an MC, and imagine you have a group of MCs. Uh, within those MCs, you have DNA groups with the, you know, the same-sex triads, men with men, women with women. And then you have the worship gathering. And you're asking specifically about some of the ways that maybe children's discipleship happens in a worship gathering. Um, or, or youth ministry, right? Um, so depending on the size, um, yeah, you're looking at, you can, you can organize this lots of ways. I mean, you could still organize children's ministry much the same way. If you're, you have deacons over that, and then you then mobilize the entire church to be a part of the volunteer base, I think you can still run Sunday just the same. Uh, some uh, have done that. Others have organized around missional communities. So let's say you have uh, eight classrooms, broken down by by age you're looking at how many volunteers does it take to man those rooms how many roughly how many mcs would it require so maybe it's two mcs or three mcs that do children's ministry in a larger church smaller church it might only require one mc to shoulder that burden but it can be done at the mc level i think it can be done at the the church-wide volunteer team level as well and so uh, most, most people, most Christians are familiar with that. They're not going to necessarily fight against that or think that somehow uh, runs against the grain of, of missional community life. Uh, they're just, we're servants. Um, I serve in the, the five and under room, and I've been doing that for years, and I love it, and I love the kids, and I do that once a month or whatever uh, can happen. Um, for mi- middle school ministry, we, we've just recently this year hired a full-time middle school pastor. Uh, we feel like it's a very strategic thing in our, in our city. We're in suburbia. Most of the families have three kids. And we just really find, even for attracting Christian laborers to join us on mission, um, they just have a real desire to see their kids get sort of age-appropriate discipleship. And, um, and so they, want, they really want that. So it's, we feel it's strategic. And we feel it's strategic to, to reach out into our community. Um, many people in our church were actually, they trusted Christ in a young life or something like that. And so they just have seen that be fruitful in their life and they, they're convinced of it. And so uh, we do have a, a now full-time uh, youth minister. Um, it's interesting, he does everything within this grid. And so he has a missional community of roughly 20-somethings that are on mission to the middle school. 
Okay? And so they meet as a separate missional community in DNAs and for their own encouragement, and they really talk through the mission, and they talk through the people that they're, they're reaching. Um, now, some of these are church kids, but they may or may not be regenerate yet. Some of them are, are definitely unchurched, unbelieving kids in the school. And so we've actually seen four unbelieving kids come to Christ this year through this, this ministry and through this, this middle school uh, um, MC. Um, and then they do something I think is really ingenious. Um, the DNA groups, which are the same-sex triads, they call them uh, MDNAs or mentor DNAs. And so they actually have like a 22-year-old girl who will be there with three middle school girls discipling them and mentoring them and taking them to ice cream and hanging out with them, like, much like you would see in maybe Young Life or some other uh, traditional youth ministries. But they're doing it in light of the gospel community mission and, and inviting the kids into mission. And so uh, we've got kids doing setup, teardown, and serving as servants. Um, I, I talked last night about bringing my daughter with us on mission uh, into tutoring. Um, English as a second language. Um, and so we have a high emphasis on uh, kids being given some heavy lifting in real life ministry as well. And, and it's probably one of my favorite things about a, a missional community life church is that we're not treating kids like, hey, go sit in the corner with a coloring sheet. Um, we're actually saying, no, we think there's things that you can do, things that are real, real ministry, real stuff that the church needs. Um, and so we're really from an early age, teaching them uh, what it means to be a disciple and inviting them into the life of the church. Yeah. Sure. So the, the middle school ministry really is a mission community that's separate, and, and they're doing that as their, their mission is to the middle school, to non-believing and to, to kids in the, in the church. Um, as far as like children's ministry as a part of the Sunday service, um, I, we, we really invite everybody in the church to consider themselves a servant and, and in that sort of volunteer stream. So if there's a rotation, however frequently, um, most are not doing it more than once a month or once every two months. And so it's not a heavy burden, but we just invite everybody to be involved in serving at some level of children's ministry on that rotation. Um, and so um, we don't necessarily just say, hey, singles do all of that uh, as much as everybody share the load. And that's really kind of the culture of the church is inviting everybody to take a turn uh, with, you know, with, with various efforts. As things get a bit uh, bigger and more refined, our church is about four years old. Uh, there may come a time when we specialize a bit more and have deacons overseeing teams that are, that are pretty specialized. Um, some of our AV and sound and some of that stuff is it's a technical skill and you don't just put anybody there. Um, and so that ends up being, you know, the same four people that rotate once a month or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to do it. And, and I think churches uh, experiment with that. But I don't know that, that Sunday children's ministry is necessarily a massive paradigm shift if you're going to go ahead and do... Uh, kids ministry some actually I don't know many some churches do a totally integrated service you know where the kids are in with adults and generational we don't we do have kids uh, they, they come in they're part of the early liturgy they sing songs they hear usually the vision vignettes the kids are in there for that we always try to do vision every week to shape culture and ethos um, and so they'll hear a, a cool story about something God's doing in the world. Sometimes the church planners in town that we support, sometimes missional communities stuff or whatever. We, kids usually hear that. We usually pray over them and send them to their class. And they, the volunteers leave then too. And it, you know, that happens maybe like 
a lot of other churches. So, but there's lots of ways to do that, and I don't know that it necessarily wars with um, missional community uh, theology as much as it's a practical matter that you work out kind of with your culture, your people, and, and sort of what works from a systemic level. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we don't cap MCs at six as a hard. I, last night I was sharing that's a that's a really great start for an MC, and there's some missional urgency and that sort of thing. Uh, some MCs grow to be quite large, and, and sometimes we're really looking to multiply quickly. But um, yeah, we don't uh, we don't really cap worship gatherings per se. Um, we've got the scale of the Soma family right now would be a church of ten, which would be a church of one missional community that's a church plant that's just starting, all the way up to uh, about a thousand. It's probably the largest church in the Soma family. Um, and uh, we certainly don't artificially sort of decide, hey, you can't, you have to multiply or that sort of thing. Um, now, I think there, are, there is a sense in which as those churches grow that uh, there's another level, which I haven't really talked about, um, called expressions, which are really clusters of missional communities in the same part of a city, particularly a, city, a large city. So you can imagine if you had a really large church in Melbourne, I've noticed kind of the distinct suburbs and distinct neighborhoods. Uh, you might start to say, hey, these, this might be um, five missional communities that are in West Melbourne, and they begin to function as what we call an expression, and there are certain things that they actually do together um, that make more sense together, that they don't do whole, holistically. Uh, we've seen some of our churches in like the Seattle-Tacoma area even do like a monthly worship gathering just as an expression, and they don't gather in with the rest of the central church. And we've seen uh, at least one of them hive off and become an autonomous church. Uh, there was, a, there was a, one of them I mentioned last night maybe, but there was a large body of water that separated them, and it was a, about a 25-minute drive. And particularly the not-yet-believers or the new-believers found it quite foreign to drive across that to go be a part of church. They're not new to church. They don't, you know, Christians will commute, and they're, they're used to it. Uh, but they were just kind of like, I don't, I don't get that. I don't know why we would drive all the way over there. I don't ever go over there. Um, and so eventually it just became clear culturally that it would probably be more strategic for that, that expression long-term to become its own autonomous church, to have a worship gathering right in that community. And that's happened. Um, but it was probably four or five years as an expression before it hived off as, as a, an autonomous church. And so, yeah. Um, you're talking about, yeah, so uh, m multiple churches in a, in, a, in a tight locale working together um, as a missional community, loosely. Yeah. Um, part of that, you know, I think you could do organically. I think if it really took off and became something that was pretty defined, you might run into some of the same disunity of, of certain church leaders and those churches not 
really being comfortable with it. And, and it could be seen as a rogue kind of scenario where they, they are like, hey, what's going on? Are you leaving our church? Are you joining with this new thing? Is this what, what's going on? And so, but assuming that there was um, sort of freedom there and those churches had trust and were excited about some hyper-local ministry happening across church lines and denominational lines, um, I think you could begin to, to think about that. Um, I mentioned, well, it's not here. I didn't mention here, but in Portland, there was a real ecumenical thing that I think the Spirit was doing, and there were things that we did together. So we did a week of prayer and fasting every October. So the whole church gathered every night in a different building, in a different church's uh, uh, facility um, for a night of worship and prayer. And they were, we were fasting all week, and then we all went downtown to this huge park, and we, we had a a worship service and time of prayer, and we broke fast, and we all kind of dispersed out into the city and ate breakfast and hung out. Uh, and this grew bigger and bigger each year, and so that was happening. Uh, there were initiatives around social justice, like foster care, that we started to, to pull things together uh, to care. We had a foster parent night out where all the foster parents in the city could sort of drop the kids off, and we all were cleared to, to do a respite care, and it gave foster parents a night, a date night and time out, and multiple churches working together to do that. And so you're really trying to find those points of continuity where there's enough trust, and it makes sense to do things together and not replicate everybody having their own, um, uh, their own expression of the same thing. Sometimes the, the utility of, of building infrastructure one time and everybody getting to, to tap into it is just a better stewardship than each individual church feeling that they have to create their own. Um, so, yeah, there are examples of that, I think, of churches working with churches. Uh, but I'd be real careful to make sure that it's not done outside the knowledge of leadership and not done in a way that's perceived to be, um, you know, hiving people off, you know, or, or doing something not, you know, that doesn't have authority or, or something like that. So, yeah. But I, I think proximity is a great idea, and I think churches being the church being the church where you are is important. Um, Eugene Peterson says, uh, the church for you is the church you can walk to. And I do think there's something about the visible church being in a particular community. And at times it's frustrating to think about people driving past each other 20, 30 minutes to be the church in other places based on programming or some other variable. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I think there's, there's stuff there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing we make sure we're really careful to do, if you're a vocational staff person, not to use your staff hours to lead your MC, because all of our, our marketplace leaders don't have the luxury of doing that. They actually are tired. They come home from a busy job, and then they have to think through, okay, what are we going to go over tonight? I've got my MC coming over, and what are we doing this week? And I need to send out an email because we're going to mobilize people and go do this thing this weekend. And uh, they have to think about that sort of after work hours. And so we make sure that we, we play it honest and that we spend our vocational hours equipping the saints to work in ministry, um, not leading MCs as just paid MC leaders. Um, but with that, um, yeah, we have, we have role descriptions as a staff. So my role happens to be equipping pastor, and I coach the MC leaders. And so part of my just hourly allocation is just spent pouring into leaders, and in some ways, it's, it's, it's like pretty different than just leading an MC, because when I lead an MC, it's almost, I might as well be a, a marketplace person, I'm just, I'm leading an MC in everyday life like everyone else, when I'm coaching an MC leader, I'm very much in that equipping role, and I'm being paid and freed up by the church to do it, and so, um, while there's overlap, I learn things in MC life that I then coach and, and help with in, in coaching, um, it's, yeah, they're fairly separate, but yeah, is that, is that kind of your question of how those two work together, I'm not, May not be hitting that exactly. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we will go and spend time with MCs, like on the ground in their mission, and we'll actually be there face to face with them. Um, sometimes we're there doing conflict resolution when the leader feels like they need some help or support. We're there doing short studies or sh- short equipping things that might just be better at just one MC kind of needs some training, and we might go into the staff level and just help to support the work. Um, so that, that can happen. Uh, I do think the limit's going to be probably how many hours are you freed up and how many MC leaders. But yeah, there's, there's going to be a cap when it comes down to, uh, if you're thinking of a large church with a thousand people, let's say there's, um, you know, I don't know, 60 MCs. Uh, can one person coach 60? Probably not. You know, at that point, that size of a church, uh, you might be looking at a team of coaches. Maybe there's four coaches. They're breaking those down by expression. Um, and in the church of a thousand, I, I, coach, I coach them as they're transitioning. Um, they do have expressions, and they have an elder over each expression and, and coaches over each expression that coach the MC leaders in that area. Um, we did that. We did something similar in Portland by regions in the city. Our staff. There were three coaches, actually, and we coached. I coached like three or four MCs just in my part of town. They coached three or four part in their part of the town, and, and we've broken up that way. But I think there's probably lots of ways to do it, but it's certainly capacity. You know, when you find that somebody's just not able to get around to the, to the number of people, at that point, you know, probably a little bit before that point, you know you're going to need at least another coach to, to handle the work. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, um, yeah. there's lots of wins. I think you're looking for wins at every level. So if you break down uh, the family missionary servant, you know, any, any aspect where you're starting to see people take on new behavior that's informed by the gospel and seems to be informed by some of the new uh, theology and teaching that's being done, I think anytime you see a, a shift, it's worth celebrating and it's worth highlighting. Um, I often think about discipleship as narration. Uh, a good leader is just narrating the journey for the, for the group and helping them see things. And so sometimes very simple things, if highlighted, encourage the body. Things that, if not highlighted, people would have just went right past and wouldn't have even realized were happening. So simple examples, there are two people that didn't really like each other. They just didn't get along much. Uh, but they heard each other's story. In missional community, they started to really understand each other a bit more. They started to, to, to have a bit more grace for each other. And then they just started to relate and to hang out in a new way and just say, hey, you know what? Claire and Susan, whatever, like, um, you guys used to not really deal with each other, but now, you know, you went out and had coffee, just the two of you, and it seems like, man, that's the fruit of the gospel at work and, and family. Like, you guys are really seeing each other as brothers and sisters, and you're committed to each other in a new way. That's, that's good work. Let's give the Spirit credit for that. Let's be excited about this. It's a family win. It's, it's, not, it's not a new person coming to Christ. It's not massive. It's, it is massive. Um, but, yeah, family. Same with mission. You're seeing somebody who's really starting to, um, it, may, it may be an early win, like they're not even, um, they haven't even had a gospel conversation yet, but they're starting to um, do their yard work in the front yard uh, when all their neighbors are coming home over and over and over. You know, and you find out that they're doing that because they're like, I just want to bump in and meet my neighbors. I just feel like this is our mission. We've kind of drawn a little line around our neighborhood and I'm just, I'm just starting to sit on my front porch when everybody's getting home from work or I'm starting to do yard work. And it's like, that's phenomenal. Like you're, you're, you're taking steps into the things of, of being on mission. Uh, to the people that we're sent to. And, and, and there hasn't even been anything fruit other than just the obedience to start, to start doing that. And so, yeah, those would be examples of just baby steps that you see. And, and I would highlight them immediately. 
You don't have to wait until there's a conversion or wait until some, you have this gnarly story of somebody coming to Christ that was in drugs or something crazy. Um, it can just be uh, simple acts of obedience throughout the community that reinforce people really do, they've come into their gospel identity, they really do believe these things are true of them and they're trying to walk out in obedience the things they feel Jesus has for them. And so, yeah, early and often, little wins I think are, are huge. Yeah. Yeah, some of the pushback will be maybe, um, hey, if we're always on mission, we're not going to really study the Bible. And I feel like the Bible is really important and we're going to lose the Bible and that's just really going to be bad and we're going to burn out or something like that. And so usually at that point, I'd redirect them to DNA groups, the essential aspect of DNA groups and how we're going to have the Bible open and we're going to be nurturing each other, caring for each other, uh, really helping to disciple one another in that space. Uh, missional community can be freed up uh, to be going into mission. Um, the other pushback, we may have said it last night, um, is individual mission versus co uh, collective mission. That's, that's, you're going to hear it if you transition. <laughs> you're going to deal with it quite often. Um, it's people saying, hey, I already have some non-believing friends, and I already have some people on neighbors. Everybody else does too. Why don't we all just do our own thing and come back and report what's happening in our own worlds? Why don't we pray for each other and just do individual mission? Um, and so there's a lot of theology to show um, sort of the communal nature, uh, the communal apologetic, and really convincing them at a theological level that this is, in fact, God's design for the church, uh, that something about the church living together and in proximity to those who don't believe on mission in the everyday is essential and from the text. Um, and so, yeah, theological resistance is there. Um, other things related to mission, I think fear of man is pretty significant, whether people are, are sort of willing to voice it or not. I think people have... Um, anxiety around evangelism and always have I mean in whatever whatever uh, model or system you have if you start to really invite people to take the risk in their relationships particularly in a culture like Australia or like places where I live San Francisco places where uh, they're not as receptive to the gospel and there there can be relational distance where people sort of put their hand up and maybe treat you differently after you share the gospel they, they, they show that even after finding out you're a Christian they don't necessarily want to always relate to you and so I think gospel identity and rooting people in the security of Christ's work and not sort of the constant unbroken approval of every person they interact with is an important part of, of discipleship. And so uh, adequately addressing um, fear of man, I think, is going to be there. Um, time and busyness certainly is going to be there. I don't know if that relates to Bible study per se, but it does relate to mission. People feeling like they're too busy for mission, uh, like it's, it's just impossible to, to live this way. Um, that's going to be a resistance. How do I deal with that? Um, I, I may have mentioned this, but uh, I talk about, you know, with my kids at times, I'll ask them to do something. And they say, yeah, in a minute, Dad, I'm actually working on something over here. I'm doing my thing. And, and, and it's sort of like, well, actually in parenting with my child, um, uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. Uh, busyness unto disobedience is not actually a, an option for them in this particular situation. Um, and same with, with King Jesus. So it's like, hey, if Jesus asked you to make disciples, 
Uh, could you come to him at the end of the life and say, I didn't make disciples, I was really busy with a lot of other things, right? And, and what things, you know? Um, and and, and when, when did we get to tell Jesus that, that we could just ignore central commands to do other things? Um, I think you're, you're gently showing people that their priorities might not be in alignment with Jesus' priorities, uh, gently again. Um, that, and, and, and also listening. I think listening to people really well and, um, and understanding exactly where their business is is coming from is really important. Sometimes there's there are opportunities already in their week that could be could be folded together with others in community and on mission, and so you're you're listening for those. But those are going to be a lot of the the resistances that that you hear and encounter, and you're going to have to equip your mission community leaders to to really address those and to to disciple people through those. So it won't just be that you know a staff level leader can articulate the why. Um, all the way down to the MC leader is going to have to be able to really build consensus and and shape theologically people's understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the kids are the mission. I think they're the people group. So both church kids, right, kids that come on Sunday, their parents are Christians. Um, I'm not always convinced that my kids are regenerate. I don't know about you guys. I have 11-year-old, 9-year-old, and 7-year-old, and they're being taught the scriptures. There's no doubt. We, we walk through the scriptures, uh, you know, multiple times a week. They hear the gospel. They can articulate the gospel. I'm not always sure they're actively trusting the righteousness of Christ for all their righteousness yet or that they have filled the Spirit. Um, one of my kids, I think, is for sure, but the other two, I'm not so sure. Um, so I think the kids are the mission. So when we talk about a mission group, a mission community has a people that they're sent to. Those are, the kids are the mission, both the church kids and the kids in, that, in the school that don't know Jesus. Now, like I said, four of them have come to Christ. Uh, the missional community, which is the people of God on mission together to these students, um, is wide and varied. It's, it's uh, like I said, it happens to be some young marrieds and singles. Uh, so they're all in their 20s. It's like, really, it's like 22 to 30. It's kind of, and it doesn't have to be that. I think I've seen 40-year-old couples who just love youth ministry, love kind of doing that kind of ministry. So we, we, don't, we didn't decide or cap. It was that there was a leadership couple that was going after that, and they were just inviting others in their sphere and influence to maybe consider joining them on mission, and, and a lot of those folks decided they wanted to. Um, so that's, that's there. Um, yeah, as far as how it goes, um, one thing I really loved about it is that we had a, um, a girl that came out of rehab. She's like uh, 17 years old. Is she 17, 18 years old? Um, maybe she's in her tw- early 20s, but... Uh, really struggles socially, has had a really hard life. She was in the foster care system. She's bounced around a lot of hard situations. Um, she's just old enough that she moved back to the city. She was adopted by her father, who was previously incarcerated. And really redemptive story. Um, but she, um, she's been invited to be a part of this missional community and to be involved in caring for youth. And so they're giving her meaningful work to do with youth that's sort of appropriate to what she's able to do. But her sense of belonging is very, very significant. So they're actually having a ministry to her while they're on mission to middle school students. And, and they take her with her. They go to concerts or they go do stuff on the weekend as a mission community, just as family. They're doing a really great job of just discipling her as they're on mission to middle school students. And so I'm seeing multiple layers of discipleship happen along the way. I mentioned the kids are being called into mission themselves. They go on service projects into San Francisco and do real service stuff. It's a bit more programmatic, but they're, they're just training wheels, right? They're just getting them kind of into it. And, and, and they're being invited. They're being encouraged to pray for their friends that don't know Jesus and to invite their friends. Um, they do have a Thursday night event 
Okay, a lot of youth, uh, youth groups sort of have that, that big event kind of thing. They do that, and it's Thursday nights, and they bring their friends, and, and that's actually how these four kids have come to Christ. They just come to the big event first. They're in a mentor DNA. They're hearing the gospel. They've got a youth leader who's coming to their sports games, and kind of they're having pool parties, and, um, and, and some of it looks like a traditional youth group. Like in the summer, there's a pool party every month, and they go uh, play uh, capture the flag, or they go and do fun things throughout the days. They invite non, non-believing kids into it. Um, and even parents. So the parents get engaged. The non-believing parents are then being talked to and kind of engaging with, with families. Uh, and, and also, you know, that, that's kind of gelling with some of the other adult missional communities in the same region. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it's, uh, it's not radically different other than the expectation of discipleship is there at an early age. And, and maybe mentor DNA groups might be a, a bit different than, than some others. Yeah, in the back. Isn't the church? Do they do they see themselves as a part of your church at some level? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that is. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. We have definitely seen uh, really healthy MCs with college students. Uh, we've definitely seen that. And, and as you know, likely the uh, millennial generation, some of the younger generation, they, they tend to be leaning into activism, and they like sort of the idea of getting out and doing uh, the work of ministry. And so uh, less resistance at that level to the, the, to the concept of missional communities and maybe even some other generations, if you look at the full scope of the church. Uh, but as far as sort of competing with the parachurch and, and everything that goes on with that, I mean, I think there's probably some hormones involved with that, like some cute girls that are there, some cute guys that are there. Uh, there's, uh, there's all kinds of things at play and why singles like to congregate in huge groups uh, in college. Um, and so some of that may be, may be difficult to completely um, uh, uh, head off. But I, I would wonder if, um, if a group of college students went through a training, let's say they went through like a summer one day or they went through some core theological training and became convinced that um, this was biblical and good and was the way to make disciples and got a heart to do it, if that wouldn't start to become a, a pretty key priority and a pretty key aspect of their community life together uh, as a, as a uh, missional community. Now, they may still want to go and meet the cute girl or guy at the big thing once a week. Um, that's just my, been my experience with, uh, with campus ministries. Uh, but uh, I wonder if, if that might even cement some of their connection uh, to the local church if, if they were in a missional community. And we have seen, like I said, some really healthy uh, missional communities reaching college students. Typically, the mission is non-believing college students and usually some older mature leaders, leaders in their 20s and 30s who are leading a missional community of college students, largely some singles, maybe some young marrieds, to college students having fruit um, you know, to, in that regard. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's been fruitful in, in multiple campuses and in, in, you know, different churches uh, throughout at least North America. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
It happens in that, that missional community that's on mission to the youth. Some of those people in that missional community. So there's like four girls in that community, and they each have that kind of different DNA groups of, of some of the, the, the kids. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. When someone's in college, if their college is local, uh, the U.S. is kind of crazy. I've heard lots of people stay in, in city to do college here. Uh, most people leave, and so our college students usually are gone, and, let, and then we get new college students who move to a university maybe near us. Um, so that happens. So, yeah, it's usually the transition is going to be either college when they would transition to a, a, an adult MC, so to speak, um, or uh, after college, after graduate, 22 years old, they're out of college, they start their first job. That, that's probably the transition. Um, you know, yeah, I think if I look at the life cycle of a, a church of missional communities, your DNA group is going to change every couple of years, usually, because you've multiplied out or someone's moved or something's happened. And so uh, DNA, I might have a two-year shelf life in general. So I don't, I don't necessarily think you would see a DNA group endure all the way from middle school into adulthood. I mean, it could happen, and we certainly wouldn't, like, probably come in and do um, something to split it up, unless it was unhealthy, you felt like they were... They were coasting because they had just known each other too long, and, and it would just be healthy to help them kind of get a fresh start. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's um, arrogant to suggest that the Soma family of churches are the only people in, in the world, right, who are doing doing church the right way. I think. Um, God is, you know, he, he doesn't um, conform solely to uh, the strategies of any one family of churches anywhere. Um, I think he's creative. I think he's doing all kinds of work and all kinds of movements all over the world. So uh, that needs to be clear. Um, I, I mentioned last night, I showed this kind of four-legged stool. I don't know if you were here and talked about kind of four legs that, you know, might all be important if you were going to see disciples mature all the way to conformity to Christ, mature love. We're talking about really, really salty, mature disciples who can make disciples. We just talked about the essential aspect of the gospel, and somebody's really grounded, uh, believes the gospel, trusting it for salvation, but also identity and, and, and through all of life is, is interpreting life in light of the gospel, uh, sharing the gospel. We're talking about community, how the church is really um, uh, communal in nature. Is it, Christianity is an Eastern religion. All the metaphors of the church are communal. And so really, an individual Christian, all by themselves, with their iPod listening to a sermon, uh, it's just foreign to the New Testament. You talk about mission. If, a, if you've got a Christian who knows the gospel, is in community, but has no sense of mission, doesn't really make disciples, doesn't feel called, never shares their faith, just insular kind of churches for me, I'm a consumer, just like, that's really not maturity. That's not a mature disciple. So mission is, is essential. You're involved in discipleship at each spectrum, sharing the faith with non-believers, developing, encouraging uh, believers unto maturity as you yourself are being developed in maturity. We talked about accountability, that size is a great depersonalizer. The bigger the group, the more anonymous you are. Often, uh, the more cognitive your faith, right? You, you know the right things, but that doesn't mean anybody even knows whether you obey the things or not. And so if you find a community that's got gospel, community, mission, accountability, chances are they maybe are making disciples unto maturity. And so we happen to believe that missional community is one of the best ways, something like a missional community, whether you call it that or not, something like that, that has gospel community mission and some level of group dynamic that's accountable enough that people are really known and growing and accountable to obey the word of, of God and all of life is essential to make disciples. And so, um, yeah, but I think there are nuances and, and other ways to get after some of those core 
core principles. Um, we just happen to think missional communities are a really great way um, and, in, in, uh, and are also transferable to all cultures, times, and places. Uh, they, they're going to take on some unique flavor depending on where they are, but you really think about those bare bone pieces, the four I just mentioned. Um, yeah, they're, I think they're universal, and I think they're universal throughout church history. Yeah. Mm hmm Yeah, some of them are more subjective than some of the old metrics, right? So if you just count heads at a service on a Sunday, that's, that's really, really tight and easy math. Uh, if you're starting to measure gospel conversations, it's just getting a temp on how that's happening. I think a missional community le a leader should have a pretty good idea if, if gospel conversations are happening or not happening within their missional community. And then coaches who are checking in with those leaders should have a pretty good idea of if gospel conversations are happening. Then, if, then a coach reporting back to the staff say about multiple missional community leaders, should be able to reflect back whether gospel conversations are happening across the whole church and to what degree. And sometimes you find that, man, the gospel's not really going out that much. You know, when we really check in, and I'm thinking about all these different communities, it's been a, it's been a couple months, and I really am not hearing much at all about the gospel being proclaimed really much of anywhere. Okay, so you go, okay, well, that's something to address. You know, that's something to be thinking about. The gospel's going to have to go out if people are going are to come to faith. Um, the other one we mentioned was baptisms. You know, these are people that are clearly evidencing that they're walking in faith. They're professing with their mouth. They're believing in their heart. They're telling you, yes, I now trust Jesus for, for all my righteousness. And they seem to be regenerate. They seem to have the, the evidence of the Spirit. Um, you, you have reason to really believe that they are, in fact, regenerate enough that you're baptizing them, right? And so that one's probably always been there, right? Nobody's, nobody really debates baptisms. Uh, hopefully a church has some level of follow-up to discover whether someone is, in fact, uh, you know, likely to be uh, saved and, and should therefore be baptized. Uh, the, perhaps the most objective is spiritual growth in Christians, uh, whatever your rubric. Uh, sometimes I like to get real simple. I mentioned faith, hope, and love. I think it's really simple, but I think looking at disciples and saying, hey, tell me examples. I mean, this is vignettes as well. Uh, tell me examples where you see someone stepping out in faith in a new way. You know, and you've got, oh yeah, we've got this young family and they've got a, you know, they've got special needs kid they just had. And they're trusting God. And it's, it's amazing. And some people, you would think that would wreck their faith. They've actually grown closer to God and their prayer life is stronger than it's ever been. And they, they actually are starting to thank God for some things about this. And they're a witness to their neighbors in a new way. They're walking by faith through this really hard circumstance. And they're saying, I think they've grown in faith this, in this situation, this season. Um, faith, hope, and love. Love um, it being the goal of our instruction, being, I think, a mark of, of maturity in the believer. Um, where evidence is that people are starting to be more and more mature in love. Um, again, it's subjective. You're looking for stories. You're looking for evidence of that. Where is, where is that manifesting in a particular missional community? As a coach, you're starting to kind of get a feel for that across multiple communities and as a staff and elders. Um, you're saying, are, are we more loving than we were last year? Is, are we becoming more mature in love as a church? Are we becoming more selfish? Or, or how are we moving? How are we trending? Um, spiritually discerned, subjective. Um, I think different... Uh, Different churches have tried to measure spiritual growth in different ways. We don't, we don't put it into a spreadsheet. We don't track it with something quite like that. It's, it's more the feel that you're getting as you're getting around people, and you're just starting to see. And, and you know that. Sometimes two years after being with someone, you're like, you're not who you used to be. Like, I've seen a tremendous amount of growth. I don't really know when it happened. I can't really, it's kind of like kids growing up. You're like, I didn't see my kids grow up, but I looked at the pictures, and I just see they're different than they used to be. Um, same with, with Christian maturity. Um, you're just more loving and more mature in your faith than you were two years ago. And, and that's, 
Is that happening across the board? Uh, I talked about leadership development. Are leaders able to do more and more? Are they better equipped than they were? Are they more effective at making disciples, leading disciples in the mission than they used to be? Is, that, are, is our leadership development really working? Um, church plants, new missional starts, missional community starts is a pretty clean metric. Are we actually multiplying missional communities or not? Uh, new church plants, are we actually planting new churches or not? Again, pretty pretty clean and trackable. Um, so those are, those are the five missional metrics we've used. Um, I think there are others that you could use. Um, certainly the other things we track, we track the finances to be responsible for budgets and other things to try to see if we can be creative in staffing and, and advancing things. Um, there's other things you can look at, but those are some of the real, the missional metrics. That's actually what we call them, missional metrics. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. Um, one of the things I, I have seen in, in a, a mature missional community that's really hitting on all three cylinders, family, missionary, servant, is that there's some, some really some amazing perks to being in a missional community. Um, one of which, like I'll, I'll share my example, um, we had a 50-year-old divorced woman in our missional community, and she, she loved our kids, and our kids loved her. She gave us a date night for free every, night, every week. Okay, we're, we're a young couple. We had three kids probably under six at the time. Uh, pretty, you're kind of in the thick of it, pretty busy life. Uh, we, got a, we got a date night every week because she really thought the church was family, and our kids treated her that way. She was at our house on Christmas Eve un- unwrapping presents. We really were tight with her, and she loved us. We loved her. Um, our neighbors, it's also missional. Our neighbors saw us having free babysitting all the time. Eventually, they asked us about it, like, guys, how do you afford a date night every week or whatever? It was like, oh, actually, it's free. You know, it's like, what? It's free? What is, how does that work? And like, oh, well, you know, we're in the church, and some perks to be in the church. And, um, and uh, we talk about that. And same with, like, rides to the airport. We always had friends, often different friends, take us to the airport early in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, whatever. Our neighbors would notice that. And how do you do that? We, we pay $150 to go park our car and sits in a lot. And we're like, yeah, yeah, being Christian, it's, it's a subsidy in your life. It's financially lucrative. <laughs> Um, so, no, there are, there are aspects when a church really starts to serve one another that are they're trade-offs in that sense. I, I, I talked about this earlier today. Um, we also did a home remodel while we had all those young kids, which maybe that's why we burned out. Um, I could, it's probably some foolishness in all that. Uh, but our, our mission community was often there helping us paint the outside of our house, or we were uh, putting trim in and living room. Our uh, whole mission community is there. There's 12, 15 people all running around, drinking beer, having pizza, having fun while we work. Our, our home improvement project is going a lot faster than our neighbor's home improvement project. And so we have a life together. Uh, yes, that does require sacrifice because sometimes we're not watching football or having fun because we're out helping someone move because we believe we're servants and we're family. And so we're sacrificing. Uh, but others are sacrificing and serving us as well. And so um, our life together is rich. Our life together involves giving and receiving in community. Um, and it's, I think, a richer life than living in isolation through the difficulty of young kids and, and super busy. As well, one more piece there. Uh, we also get creative in folding things together. And so figuring out, let's say, two moms. They both do play dates at the, at the park once a week. 
What if they folded them together and did DNA while they were doing the play dates and the kids are just playing on the playground equipment? Okay, they're not necessarily adding anything to their life. They're just adding a layer of intentionality. Now, let's say they didn't think it was DNA. They were thinking it actually needs to be more mission because DNA has happened somewhere else. What if we started inviting some non-believing moms to join us for the play group to go to the park together? And we actually started really building strength of relationship and having opportunities to, to minister to them because they're going through a hard season. Yeah, so anyway. You meaning uh, the, the, there's a host home, so to speak, that sends, tends to be the hub? Some do. Um, often they do. I would say usually there's a default home that seems more times than not to be where they gather. Um, sometimes communities really do a great job of sharing the load. I mentioned yesterday my mission community largely meets on our mission, which is a cul-de-sac in a, in a 10 minutes away from our house. Uh, we literally meet on site in that community. Uh, but when we gather in a home, we actually rotate usually between three, three families. So we share the hosting responsibility. You know what it's like, clean up before. Actually, we say, hey, we're a good family, so let's all restore their house back to the way it be so that when we leave they can go, and we go to bed, they can actually just go right to bed. Let's be a good family, so we do all that. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's, there's some variance, but some communities really are a bit hubbed around one house. I'd, I'd like to encourage them not to do that so that that one, particularly if it's leaders too, uh, so that those people aren't paying a double tax with everything all the time and getting wary and say, hey, it's a pretty low bar to host. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's work and servants, uh, but you don't have to be a great leader to host. You just have to, like, put the cats in the garage and, you know, do a couple of things. Um, so, anyway, yeah, there was multiple people. Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure I'm understanding. So you're saying... Um, sure. Proof of concept, and then if it, that goes well, maybe the whole church will transition or something yeah. kind of like that. Yeah, so the church I'm a part of now um, planted out of a... Well, they, they actually started as kind of within the church with the full blessing of this large Presbyterian church. Um, and they realized, as they saw it in real terms, wow, this is really different than what we're doing. And they gave their full blessing to this becoming an autonomous church plant, and they actually funded it as well, which is in the same town. Um, and, and even saying, take, take our people, take people with you. This is really different. After they really understood it, they didn't want to, they didn't want to transition. It was a very programmatic church, very established. Um, but, yeah, they blessed it, and they, they planted a church of missional communities as a church that was not a church of missional communities, uh, but then decided not to transition. Um, if, are you saying, I, I don't know that I've seen an example where, say, a programmatic church planted a church of missional communities as a pilot to then watch in cl close proximity, then as a decision point to then decide whether or not they would? But that may not be your question. Okay, you're just saying like a pilot MC, so it's not so much a church plant, but a pilot MC or two? Yeah. Maybe it's a church plant. Yeah, 
No, I think an evangelist can be a really, really valuable gift in a, in a missional community, and particularly early church plant of any kind. Um, and so that may be there if you have an evangelist and God raises up and is able to be sent. Um, that could be there. Um, I don't know that missional communities immediately have to have vocational staff because the core theology and even practice is, is something that should be scalable and reproducible and should be able to multiply with non-staff people. And so uh, because it, as you scale and multiply, you're going to be asking lots of non-paid people who have other jobs and things to lead missional communities. And so uh, at least initially, the first MC, I don't think you should necessarily have to have staffing unless it's a really clear church plant. And that's just the impetus of the start of the church plant. Then I could see you know, the, the possibility of staffing. But even in that situation, a lot of people start bivocational or something and maybe multiply a few MCs and gradually move into a full-time role. Um, as far as staffing, I mean, it, it really depends. Is this going to be a pilot group within a church and they're going to give some staff hours freed up to equip some of the initial leaders? Is this going to be a church plant? And then now we're looking at a church plant assessment to discover is this person of the character of an elder? They have the competency of a church planner. Do we feel like God's doing this in their life? Are we sending them? Um, yeah, there are different gifts that can be there at the start of a church plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mentioned pitfalls. We have seen it go fairly poorly when a church just tries to do a pilot group as a, as a toe in the water. Um, and, they're, and they're not totally sold yet on doing that with the entire church. Um, although if the leadership is humble and the leadership's willing to, to just say, either you can go and be an autonomous church, um, that's great. But the idea of sort of running two parallel systems side by side within the same church hasn't gone well. Uh, in the past, uh, that's just, and so if it, I, in some ways, if, it, if a leadership team wasn't convinced, I don't know that I would invite them to get a group of people really excited about it, because typically there's been good fruit, there's been growth, there's even been multiplication, and then all of a sudden they realize, and it does usually take that to really see, okay, this is different than what we thought, and we're not willing, or we're not feeling like we should have the whole church then go this direction, and now you're kind of stuck um, with this church within a church, uh, which can be unhealthy. Yeah. Sorry, you got, I'm going to make sure I get around to some other. Yeah. Uh, stories of uh, small communities and and specifically, what what vein of stories? I'm there. Yeah, I'm gonna make sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So somebody who's never really done, he's never stepped into this, but now did so and it went well. Is that kind of what you're getting after? Yeah. People. Yeah, no, so I have so many stories. In fact, um, as I mentioned, most mission communities are transitioning Christians because no Christ, most Christians haven't ever done this before. And so I'd say most MC leaders with the first MC they're leading are doing something for the very first time. And they're involved in discipleship in a way that they haven't been in the past. And so, yeah, there are lots of, lots of stories. Um, usually uh, some of the success stories, I'm thinking of a, a couple right now in our community, um, Taylor and Chelsea, who are just uh, very, very passionate about their faith. They're very, very much love people. Um, 
And I think they probably struggled to find an outlet or an expression for their energy and for their excitement and their desire to serve. And so, um, and they were in a different church that was a bit more programmatic and they would probably do everything that church asked them to do. Uh, but yet it, it didn't necessarily sort of get them excited. It was just, hey, we're going to do what they ask us, and that's great, and uh, here we are. Um, and now being in a missional community, um, they really are seeing all of, all of life as mission, even though one's a nurse and one's a, a draftsman or a, an architect. Uh, it's not their job at all. They don't have any aspirations to go and pursue full-time ministry, but they're actually in full-time ministry. And so um, nobody's asking them to. We're not hanging over them. Hey, we need you to go up to our, our people group you know, three times a week, um, but they, have, they often do go to our people group three times a week, and, and they're, ta- they're going to see kids' soccer games, and they're, they're tutoring on Tuesdays, and, and then they're um, inviting kids to go to, to church with them on Sunday, and they're going to pick them up, and um, they're uh, going to eat at this restaurant that's in our mission with people, and they're just constantly thinking and praying and engaged in the mission, um, and, I, and I think in the past, they just didn't have the tracks. They had the desire. They had the heart. They were totally willing to, to make disciples and to be involved, but they just didn't, they didn't know how. They didn't know in what way. There, there, it was, it was um, as if they were in a room without doors or something. They just didn't know how to get to the mission or to discipleship uh, through the, 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 the systems and, and structures that were in, in place. And so, yeah, we've seen that many, many times. And what usually happens, people get really excited and activated uh, when they actually see the Spirit of God using them. They start to see really good fruit. And they're usually ruined to go back uh, to being in a pew, volunteering once a month, tithing, and just kind of being a, a Christian in, in that system. And so, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're saying you're reaching people with mental health and then your community is attempting to walk with those people, but you're saying it's exhausting and there's a lot of needs? Sure, it's the people God gave you. Yeah, it's the people God gave you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I do think um, one of the things we've seen with, with folks, we've seen folks who've been coming out of uh, incarceration. We've seen folks coming out of drug use. Um, some of that is, is also maybe tied to mental illness at, at different places. Um, and, and we've seen, um, yeah, a tremendous amount of what I'll call reparenting or people that come around someone and do holistic life skills stuff. They're helping them with resumes. They're helping them with really basic Sometimes hygiene, right? Just simple things, uh, but they're doing it as a holistic ministry. And you're not going to create a program for each one of those things. These are just people who are attentive to the people they're sent to. Um, The other thing is we've learned over time, I think you really want to share that burden. So sometimes there might be a couple who just has a real heart and is just willing to do that. Um, but it's not always sustainable to take on all of the needs of, of somebody with, with a lot of needs. And so um, at times, and there's sometimes without cars, people need rides, and they're calling the same people every day, and they're asking for certain help every day. And so um, often we've tried to, um, to guard people from being burnt out in situations like that. And so how can we share some of these loads? How can we disciple this person 
to have some realistic expectations about how much we can do, how quickly. Um, is it every day that we can drive them to an appointment or, or you know, do this? Can we get them a bus pass? That would enable them. We'll pay for it. They don't have the ability to afford the bus pass. We can buy the bus pass. And so you start to prayerfully and creatively problem solve around all the issues that are there, but also to share that load. Um, and I think the more uh, complex the situation, right, uh, the more that does press the community into dependence on the Spirit, into a life of prayer, into saying, God, this is a situation, there's not a, no one's written a book about this yet. Uh, we don't know what to do, and we're going to have to trust you, and we're going to have to ask you, and we're going to have to seek your help and your strength to walk with this people that, uh, that have so many diverse needs, and we, we need your help. And so uh, that, that's often growing our faith quite a bit uh, when, when we're working with folks you know, particularly of the variety you're talking about. Yeah, Nathan, time, time's kind of up. One, one more question? Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there are churches and missional communities in, in multiple uh, countries now and in multiple, in multiple cultures. Um, but, yeah, to do something like DNA, you're absolutely going to have to have leadership equipped probably in the language. Um, you know, so if you're going to have a DNA group and you've got only Spanish speakers um, or only those who speak Chinese or something, um, yeah, you probably are looking at um, dual fidelity, somebody who's both mature enough to lead and whatever your bar or threshold is of leadership but also has sort of the language with those, those folks. Um, we don't have an example of like a, uh, a DNA group with like a translator and everything's happening for two different languages simultaneously or anything quite like that. Um, I guess the hope would be that if you're reaching that culture, you've got the ability to sort of have a ling linguistic capacity to, to engage that. But I'll be honest with you, I'm not, um, I don't personally work with any churches directly right now who have multiple languages of people who are fully immersed into the same church. Um, our community right now is reaching a, an Hispanic community, uh, which is different than English speaking. Uh, we're doing English as a second language for those that are really wanting to become more proficient in English. And we have Spanish speakers specifically in our community. So there are people that we encounter that don't speak English at all. And we've got uh, probably two or three people in our community that do. And they're going to end up naturally engaging with those of that language. They're, the, they're going to have that relationship. And it's going to be difficult um, we have small talk, you know, with, with folks across language, but it's, it's obviously pretty difficult. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So then you're just finding out what's our threshold of, of kind of minimal level of competency and spiritual maturity to lead DNA. And it's not the highest bar, you know, but they need to be Christian and they need to, they need to know and understand the scriptures to, to an extent and how to study the scriptures and pray and lead other people in that. Um, and also speak the language of those that, that are also going to be integrated into a DNA. So, yeah, I think that's, that's there. Okay, guys, uh, there's a lot more. The good news is there are um, lots of resources. Probably your best resources are human resources. There's, there are four churches organized around missional communities in Melbourne. Uh, Matt and Nat and uh, Nathan and uh, Pete, and so uh, they're going to be great resources for you. There are resources, uh, of course, online. Uh, SaturateTheWorld.com is sort of the equipping arm of the Soma family of churches. There's a lot of videos, a lot of training. There are curriculums and primers. 
Uh, this next year, there's going to be done some work specifically around the topic we're talking about tonight. There's going to be a transitions conference in North America, and they're looking at creating a transitions primer, which churches that are wanting to transition would actually have some tracks for working out some of those things with probably first the leadership team, and then eventually maybe with the leadership core and then the entire church towards, towards transitioning mission communities. So more of that's coming. Um, and, of course, uh, wearesoma.com has Soma School videos. So if you're just looking for theological vision and really being grounded in some of the really foundational pieces that I went through fairly quickly last night, you can go to Soma School. You can watch all those videos, about six to seven hours of training, and really continue to ruminate, pray, think through uh, if you're convinced of this and if you want to continue to explore it. So let me pray for us uh, and, and for Melbourne as we close. Oh, actually, Nathan, why don't you do that?